0: It is the morning of November 22nd, 1718, off the coast of North Carolina. The crystal blue waters in the Ocracoke Inlet glisten in the sunlight. Robert Maynard is a lieutenant in the British Navy. His ship, the Jane, sails in concert with the Ranger. Together, they creep through the shimmering waters on the hunt for pirates. For years, the notorious pirate Blackbeard has pillaged and plundered the Caribbean. Now, his attention is on the eastern seaboard of North America. For months, he's blockaded ports, raided ships, and stolen vessels. But his tyranny has gone on long enough. It's reported Blackbeard is now operating out of Ocracoke Island, a narrow and uninhabited strip of land. Governor Alexander Spotswood of Virginia has tasked Lieutenant Maynard with bringing Blackbeard to justice, by any means necessary. Maynard is days out of Virginia, having sailed up the James River. He has stopped ships going in and out of the Ocracoke inlet to quash any warnings of their approach. But Maynard has one major disadvantage. He doesn't have the firepower of naval vessels. The Jane and the Ranger are gunless sloops that Maynard commandeered for this surprise attack. The only weaponry is what the soldiers can carry. As Maynard's ship comes around the island, he peers through his scope. There she is. Blackbeard's sloop, the adventure, sat peacefully at anchor. They've got her. The ranger comes from the other direction. Maynard has trapped Blackbeard, or so he thinks. Through the scope, Maynard sees that the pirate crew is thin, only a handful of men are on deck. Those on board are hung over from a night of drinking, and the rest of Blackbeard's men are on shore. There's no escape now. The Union Jack unfurls on both vessels as they approach the anchored pirates. The pirate crew sound the alarm. Blackbeard cuts the anchor, and the ship hastily sets off. Without cannons, Maynard's men fire muskets at the adventure, but they do minor damage. Having lost the element of surprise, Maynard watches in horror as the adventure broadsides the ranger with cannon fire. The ranger is crippled and her crew are mostly dead, including their captain and first officer. The adventure begins to turn towards the Jane. Maynard orders his man at the helm to take evasive maneuvers, but the crew suddenly jerk forward as the Jane comes to a crashing halt. They've hit a sandbar Maynard orders the men to throw all non-essential items overboard to lighten the vessel. If they don't break free, Blackbeard will cripple them just like the Ranger. This will all be for nothing. The adventure continues to maneuver, readying to fire. The Jane is strafed with grapeshot. Iron pellets rake the ship, causing carnage. Twenty of Maynard's men are dead, others writhe in agony on the blood-soaked deck but the Jane is free of the sandbar and the two ships close the gap between each other. Anticipating that Blackbeard will board them, Maynard orders his surviving men into the hold and to ready their pistols. Only he and his helmsman remain above board. Maynard covers his head, the pirates are lobbing grenades onto the deck. Grappling hooks tether the ships together and the pirates swing over. Blackbeard, sensing victory is at hand, is first over the rail. Maynard shouts the command to attack, bursting from the hold of the hidden naval officers, armed with pistols, muskets, and cutlasses. Maynard's surprise attack catches the pirates off guard. The fight is quick and vicious. A thick cloud of gun and grenade smoke engulfs the deck of the Jane. Through the smoke, Maynard locks eyes with Blackbeard. With cutlasses drawn, the two charged each other. The swords crash and beat against one another. Maynard slices Blackbeard's arm. The pirate growls from the pain. Maynard dodges Blackbeard's blade as he tries to slash at his belly. Blackbeard is now in a frenzy, pressing in on Maynard, backing him into the mast. But Maynard finds an opening and jabs Blackbeard. Before Blackbeard can attack again, Maynard's men fire at the pirate captain. Blackbeard stumbles and drops to his knees. The frenzied look drains from his face. Blackbeard is slain. The British Navy overpower the remaining pirates. They have surrendered within minutes of their raid. Blackbeard lies at Maynard's feet. The pirates' corpse has five bullet wounds and some 20 cuts. But Maynard wants a trophy. He brings his cutlass down on the pirate's neck and slices Blackbeard's head clean off. Blackbeard's body is then thrown into the water to become fish food. Taking a clump of Blackbeard's still sweaty, greasy black hair, Maynard lifts it and shows off the decapitated head to the captured pirates. His men cheer, victory. As Maynard returns to the colony of Virginia, a hero, He makes sure everyone witnesses his success. Hanging from the bow of Maynard's ship, is Blackbeard's severed head. Blackbeard is finally dead. His reign of terror, over. I'm Tom Morton, and welcome to Real Pirates. The show that dives deep into the true story behind the world's most notorious buccaneers. Join us as we set sail under the Black Flag, alongside such legendary figures as Blackbeard, Henry Morgan, Charles Vane, Anne Bonnie and Mary Read. We'll reveal how these marauding mariners rose to dominate the Seven Seas, the terror tactics they employed to overpower their prey, and what life was really like aboard their ships. Their reputations have swollen to legendary proportions, making it hard to separate fact from fiction. Who were they? Terrorists or freedom fighters? Cold-blooded killers or heroic underdogs? As it turns out, the truth is far stranger than fiction. Blackbeard's Last Stand is seen as one of the greatest piratical battles in history. For many historians, it signals the end of the height of the golden age of piracy. The period between 1714 and 1726, when pirates terrorized the seas, crippling colonies and bringing empires to their knees. But how did pirates become a major threat, not only to the British Empire, but to global trade as a whole? Striking fear into the hearts of every mariner across the seven seas and cementing their names in history books for centuries to come. Well, it turns out that the bloody history of 18th-century piracy begins with peace. It's 1713. A salty breeze blows off the aquamarine waters surrounding Port Royal, Jamaica. Boats lazily bob on their moorings as seagulls cry overhead. Gently-curved palm trees sway on the pristine white-sand beach. Near the docks, the smell of fine goods rises in the hot Caribbean sun, emanating from warehouses that until recently stood empty. Now the air is once again filled with the thick scent of exotic spices, sweet wine, preserved meats, and sugar. It's a tranquil setting, but against this idyllic backdrop, a scene of unrest is erupting on the docks. A mob of half starved seamen have surrounded a merchant ship. Desperately, they beg the captain to sign on to the voyage, wherever it's headed, even on half pay. As a few lucky men are chosen, fights break out and some mariners even try to jump aboard as the ship begins pulling away from the dock. It's been months since any of these seamen have worked. Many of them have turned to begging and are surviving on scraps. Others are quickly burning through their meager savings by drowning their sorrows at local taverns. It's hard to believe, looking out onto this scene of desperation, that until a few months ago, Port Royal was a sailor's paradise. You see, for the past 10 years, these sailors were vital assets in a geopolitical struggle, a battle for the future of the Western world The War of Spanish Succession. But all that changed with the signing of a single document in April of 1713. The Peace of Utrecht. The War of Succession was, in simple terms, a dispute between monarchs over who should succeed Charles II of Spain. But in reality, it was a struggle between European empires for global supremacy. After a decade of brutal conflict... National finances lie in ruin. The Treaty of Utrecht means essential transatlantic trade can now be re-established between Britain, France and Spain, with the Caribbean as the epicentre. The war has left Britain the dominant force in the West Indies. Spain has been forced to concede the Asiento, permission for Britain to supply cheap labour to the Americas, in the form of enslaved humans from West Africa. This barbaric trade, aside from being a valuable market for Britain, also provided, quite literally, the lifeblood of her colonial plantation economies in the Caribbean, especially in the cultivation of white gold. Dr. Rebecca Simon is a historian and author of Why We Love Pirates, The Hunt for Captain Kidd, and How He Changed Piracy Forever.
1: The number one trade item coming out of the Caribbean was sugar. You could get sugar from the Mediterranean, but it was still expensive. But they actually found that Mediterranean sugar really exploded in the Caribbean. It really took to the climate. So for the first time ever, They have a whole abundance of sugar to be able to start shipping to Europe and people clamor for it. It's called the sugar craze and they couldn't sell enough. And so this causes a massive increase in the slave trade, which had already been going on, but at a much smaller scale. So now it's exploded with the Caribbean being one of the main hubs. And after the war of Spanish succession with Britain now officially controlling the seas, the slave trade is a never ending resource.
0: However, while the newly minted peace treaty is good business for the plantation owners, traders and merchants, the same cannot be said for mariners of the era. The common seamen on the docks of Jamaica and countless other port cities, who crew transatlantic trading vessels and slave ships, as well as the thousands of sailors who until recently served on the warships of the Royal Navy. Colin Woodard is a journalist and author of The Republic of Pirates,
2: the War of Spanish Secession, when it ended, that was a bit of a cataclysm for many of the ordinary naval sailors because once peace came, the Royal Navy essentially contracted by three quarters, dumping tens of thousands of ordinary sailors, naval sailors, on the docks of wherever their ships happened to be. And simultaneously, because the supply of sailors had just grown astronomically, merchant shipping captains and owners realized this and slashed wages essentially by half in the aftermath of the war. So even if you found work on a merchant vessel, you were working for often, almost literally starvation wages. It was often said that, You know, being a a sailor in this time period was much like being uh, imprisoned, except with the added possibility of drowning. It was not something you went into unless you had to. And now the brutality of the system got a lot more brutal. So it was creating a lot of tension and senses of injustice among ordinary sailors on the merchant vessels. And this was creating a a sort of sociological powder keg that would soon explode in the aftermath of this conflict.
0: Violent scenes like those on the docks of Port Royal break out in every major port across the empire. The mariners are embittered, desperate, and willing to do just about anything to make ends meet. Most of them have spent their entire lives at sea, and a sudden career change is out of the question. The situation seems hopeless. It's a still summer night in Port Royal. Under the flickering street lamps, off a cobbled street near the harbour, muted shouts and cheers rise out of one of the many alehouses. In a dimly lit tavern just off the coastline, sailors crowd. The air is muggy and dank, filled with the sweet scent of pipe tobacco and rum. The sound of drunken sea shanties breaks out from time to time. A few sex workers mill throughout the crowd, turning heads as some of the only women in Port Royal. At the bar lingers a drunk, a one-armed, one-legged man injured from the war, begging for credit just to buy a single stale beer. The men are starting to get raucous and loud. There's been a general air of hostility in Port Royal ever since the peace treaty was signed, and the energy in the room is starting to shift from drunken merriment to violence. Soon, fights fueled by too much rum will break out, but there is a group sitting at a grime-covered table in the corner that don't join in the revelry. In the middle, sits a grizzled, middle-aged privateer named Benjamin Hornigold, surrounded by half a dozen or so former crewmates and acquaintances. One such acquaintance may well be a quiet, intense man in his late 20s, a former naval officer, slowly twisting the ends of his dark whiskers and listening attentively. Edward Thatch, who later will be known on both sides of the Atlantic, by his alias, Blackbeard. Aside from Thatch, all the other men are just like Hornigold. Lean, weathered, scarred, hard men. Men who were not just bred to a life at sea, but had generally spent much of the past decade making their living performing acts of state-sanctioned violence on the high seas. These men are privateers.
2: Throughout the world during this sort of World War, if you will, and you can imagine how any Navy, even a relatively large one like the English had, would be stretched thin to achieve military objectives and to defend shipping in these vast oceans. And it was essentially impossible. So all sides outsourced this problem to the private sector. They essentially had a mechanism to have naval mercenaries go out and do what needed to be done. They were called privateers and sovereigns so it would give, essentially, permission to pirates to predate on enemy shipping in time of war. And there were tons, you know, hundreds and hundreds of privateering vessels operating out of Jamaica and other ports raiding the opponent's shipping. And this was sort of a nursery for people with the kind of skills that might be useful to a pirate crew later on.
0: Privateering wasn't a new idea in the 1700s. For centuries, European nations had frequently commissioned sailors to raid enemy shipping. Under Contract or Letters of Mark, but the War of Spanish Succession prompted an incredible boom in privateering contracts. Over the course of the war, a staggering 1,622 Letters of marque were issued, flooding the oceans with legal pirates.
2: So for privateers, of which there were many based in Jamaica, the war had been a time of prosperity. The owners of your vessel would get half of whatever plunder you got. So it was really good for the owners. Uh, And then the captain might get 14 shares of what you get and the other sailors would get a share apiece. But it would still work out to a lot more money than being paid wages as a sailor. And many people engaged in it, including some of the people who had become the founding charter members of the Golden Age Pirate Gang, from which many of our
0: our legends have their origins. For Hornigold and his fellow privateers, the end of the war means the end of gainful employment. Now they're faced with a choice, trade in their lives of adventure and join the growing hordes of -of out-of-work sailors fighting over meager wages, or simply continue on as before without the government's permission. For many privateers, turning pirate is the obvious choice. It's a danger that those in the colonies have seen a long time coming. In 1708, the deputy postmaster of Jamaica, William Bignall, notes of privateering that it is the opinion of everyone of this cursed trade, will breed so many pirates that when peace comes, we shall be in more danger from them than we are now from the enemy. His words, in the decades to follow, will prove chillingly true. Not much is known about Hornigold's life until this moment in 1713, when he makes a decision that will ensure his name is etched on the historical record. Hornigold knows two things. He knows how to sail, and he knows how to make money doing it. By plundering prize ships stocked full of gold trade goods and commodities that can sustain a ship for weeks at a time and always with the possibility of making a big score striking it rich for hornigold and his former colleagues it's an easy decision to make they will go into business for themselves with no investors and no license to pay they will be free to choose their targets and to keep all prize money for themselves sure it's not strictly a legal enterprise But is anyone really going to care if they raid a few Spanish merchant ships? Other than the Spanish, of course. And if they choose the right location, who would be in a position to stop them in any case? All they need is a base of operations. And Hornigold knows just the place. A few hundred miles north of Jamaica lay a sparsely populated archipelago of islands, full of inlets, coves and hidden waterways far beyond the reach of any agent of the law, a territory that was essentially free for the taking, the Bahamas. The perfect location from which a small gang of would-be brigands could launch their new careers as pirates.
2: The Bahamas had been in English possession, but during the War of Spanish Secession, the island had been sacked four times by the enemy and the fort destroyed and the, you know, 20, 30 families who were still there by the end of the war were living in improvised hovels out in the jungle to hide out from any raiders and tried to survive by fishing, picking coconuts, stripping wrecks of any ships that showed up, but were barely getting by. And so Hornigold and these pirates came ashore there first before the empire got around to reclaiming this failed colony. And they chose this place not only because it was available, but also because if you look at a map, Look at where the Bahamas are. They're right opposite Florida in the Straits of Florida, a little north of Jamaica. And they're this archipelago of hundreds of then uncharted islands with reefs and sandbars and all the rest. Dangerous places for any large deep draft vessel like a Royal Navy frigate or a Spanish galleon to ever follow in. So it was a perfect base. And consider this, the Straits of Florida through which the Gulf Stream flows like a giant conveyor belt Almost all of the shipping in the age of sail was compelled to sail through the Straits of Florida from anywhere in the entire western half of the Caribbean Basin to get back to Europe.
0: Not only are the Bahamas a lawless, failed colony with perfect geography for coastal raiding and well-positioned next to major trade routes, it's also known as a historic pirate hideout, even back when it was a functioning colony. In 1696, Henry Avery, the Great Pirate, as he was known in England, famously landed there after journeying from Madagascar. Despite an international manhunt and a huge bounty on his head from the East India Company, with the help of the willing local governor Nicholas Trott, Avery sold his flagship and traded in his luxury goods, stolen from the Mughal Emperor of India. And then he disappeared. Perhaps the world's most successful pirate, never captured nor heard from again. Just... A legend and an inspiration for those who would seek to follow in his footsteps. Dr. Manushang Powell is an historian and pirate expert.
3: So it's not that you have a calm, peaceful, agrarian society on the Bahamas and one day, like, Hornigold sails in and he's like, y'all are pirates now. Like, that's not what happened. There were already pirates there. There were reasons going back a couple of decades that made it reasonable for him to think it was a good place to, to sort of set up shop. He doesn't, you know, head to Nassau and make it a pirate haven. Nassau was a pirate haven, which is why he headed there.
0: So in the first summer of peace in 1713, Hornigold decides to continue his own private war using the Bahamas as his base. The only problem with this sort of start-up business is a lack of capital, specifically hardware, a decent ocean-going vessel. Clearly, buying one is out of the question. It's beg, borrow, or steal. There's all kinds of ships on the seas of the 18th century. Treasure galleons, heavily armed Navy frigates, right down to defenseless merchant vessels and fishing boats. After years as a privateer, Hornigold knows that there are only two ways to capture a ship. By force or threat of force. But when you're just starting out, you need to be light, fast and clever. Some of them, like Hornigold,
2: would improvise their own first vessels, you know, take off, into an area where authority has collapsed, into the wild, so to speak, with a dugout sailing canoe, a fast moving ocean canoe that you and your colleagues can paddle into the wind to outmaneuver sailing vessels that would have to tack after you to get into the wind, or can you know sail over long distances and carry cargoes. Use that to raid Spanish shipping, to sneak ashore at night on the shores of Cuba and raid a Spanish plantation and run back with your treasure,
0: Hornigold and his motley band start small. They acquire three small canoes called periaguas. With just one mast, oars and no heavy armament, these lightweight vessels hardly seem capable of taking out large merchant ships. But Hornigold and his men use their diminutive size to their advantage. Each periagua is capable of carrying around 30 men, along with an ample supply of cargo. They are also fast, far faster than the lumbering sloops used for trading. The canoes can also easily navigate the small estuaries, coral heads and shallow waters surrounding the Bahamian islands. Their victims in large, ocean-going vessels would risk being run aground if they chose to pursue them through these labyrinthine inlets.
2: And where were the early pirates? They were sitting there right next to the superhighway, in this maze of islands to which they can't be pursued. They could leap out and grab the tractor trailer trucks going by, the lorries going by, and seize their cargoes and drag them away and nobody could get them. In other words, they picked the perfect base. And that was where Hornigold and his fellows, first operating out of these dugout sailing canoes, had arrived to set up a
0: pirate base. But this is just the beginning. Hornigold, like all pirates, knows that the ultimate goal is to capture a proper ship. And then a bigger ship.
2: The strategy of the pirates was always, maybe you start with a wooden sailing canoe. But the general plan was to slowly work your way up, trade up as you go. If you and your periaguas capture a a large sloop that you can mount cannon on, well, maybe you're gonna keep that sloop and maybe capture another sloop. Maybe you'll stop using the periaguas altogether and you'll have a couple sloops and then your sloops together capture a larger brigantine and that's better, faster, has more storage capacity or whatever, has attributes that make it a better pirate vessel. And eventually, if you're lucky, you're hoping to trade up to the point where you can capture a full on frigate sized vessel. A vessel every bit as big as anything the Royal Navy has to defend the empire.
0: Operating out of New Providence, the Bahamas' central island, in 1714, Hornigold and his two lieutenants, John Cochram and John West, split up and successfully start raiding local shipping in the Florida Straits and plantations on Cuba and Hispaniola. They are on their way.
2: So... Hornigold and his faction and many of the pirates who would follow were, you know, no longer privateers. They didn't have permission from anybody to be raiding enemy shipping. And this is pointing to an important distinction between these golden age pirates that we're speaking of and the buccaneers and privateers who preceded them. What Hornigold was doing and his fellow pirates around him was something else entirely. They were freelance pirates without any permission. They were true outlaws.
0: They have a very productive summer. By the time Hornigold, Cockrum and West reunite on Nassau, they have amassed a staggering 13,000 pounds in booty. To put it in perspective, that's 10 times the value of the total annual imports of the colony of Bermuda in just a few months. Some of their treasure is Spanish silver dollars, But much of the loot consists of valuable goods – Asian silk, fine linen, copper, rum, cocoa and sugar.
1: The booty that pirates were after were things that could sell where you could get lots of money. We often think about pirates looking for treasure, gold, jewels, coins, etc. That was actually very rare. A lot of ships didn't carry cash because it was risky to do so. They wanted to get items like valuable textiles such as calico or muslin or silks in particular, really good quality wool. They wanted sugar. That was huge. Actually, in the 16th and 17th centuries, the word treasure just meant valuable, goods that were worth money. It had nothing to do with gold and jewels. That changed over time. So whatever could sell.
0: But Horning Gold and his pirates can't just sail into Charleston or Virginia and hawk their stolen goods in the harbors. They need someone who will buy or fence stolen goods, access to colonial markets. Fifty miles north of Nassau lies Harbour Island, home to one of the Bahamas' few wealthy traders, namely one Richard Thompson, who was only too happy to fence the pirates' goods.
1: There was quite a bit of a black market system in a lot of the plantation colonies and in parts of North America. So in the 1650s, the British had passed something called the Navigation Acts, which blocked trade from any country that wasn't Britain. So this left a lot of people really kind of desiring goods that they couldn't get. And pirates could fill this gap.
3: Smuggling was really important to the Caribbean. And so pirates and smugglers are, are a lifeline, right? And the pirates provide the goods that the smugglers smuggle and the fence fence, And everybody kind of gets something that they need out of this. So that's the other reason that Nassau is so attractive is not just that there's no government there that's going to be strong enough to fend off a lot of pirates, it's that it's easier to kind of do trade because the people that are still there, like, that's the only way they're going to survive is by dealing with smugglers, and they were.
0: One of the pirates, John Cockram, has a particular flair for trade, ingratiating himself with Thompson immediately. He even marries one of Thompson's daughters and becomes a partner in his trade business, a useful ally to Hornigold's gang. Together, they will become the leading sales agents in the black market for stolen goods in the Bahamas, as well as providing the pirates with whatever goods they need to stay in business.
2: They were like the FedEx delivery people, you know, or Home Depot, you know, call us up. Oh, you need some naval stores and munitions and some stuff to repair your vessels and some cannonballs and some Madeira wine? Sure, you know, we'll be back in four weeks, you know, and they'd go to Charleston. And so they were fencing the goods of Hornigold and his men
0: through the autumn of 1714, Benjamin Hornigold and his crew continue pirating and collectively amass over 60,000 pounds. Along the way, another local businessman, the reformed pirate John Darvel, decides to get in on the scheme and agrees to financially back Benjamin Hornigold, leasing him his sloop, the Happy Return. Darvel's investment pays off. He quickly recoups over 2,000 pounds in goods, including enslaved people. But soon Hornigold will have no need for an investor. Towards the end of the year, he purchases his own small ship, trading up from the canoes. Almost immediately, Hornigold and his crew strike rich again.
2: So Hornigold and his men started by raiding Spanish plantations and small Spanish vessels going in and out around Cuba and in the Straits of Florida. And they made some spectacular raids. At one point, they came ashore in Cuba, raided a Spanish slave plantation, and came back with over 12,000 pounds worth of treasure and loot. I mean, consider that a merchant captain in that era had an annual salary of like 65 pounds. This was a staggering amount of money for A bunch of ordinary sailors to come up with."
0: Benjamin Hornigold has become one of the most successful pirates in the Caribbean, certainly in the Bahamas. He is blazing a trail, and in the coming years, thousands more will follow his example. But Hornigold's success will come at a cost. Soon, three imperial powers will be cursing his name and declaring his guilt to the world. Benjamin Hornigold and his crew are about to be hunted. In just a few short months, Benjamin Hornigold has transformed the Bahamas from a forgotten outpost of the British Empire to a powerful pirate haven. However, the Bahamas are not quite as defenseless as they appear. There is one official representative of the empire still living in Nassau, Thomas Walker. Walker, aged 55, has lived in the Bahamas his entire life. During the war, Many of his fellow colonists fled after a series of devastating Spanish attacks. But Walker stayed, deciding to rebuild from the rubble rather than abandon his home. And he didn't just cower within the ruined fort. He went on the offensive, fitting out a privateering vessel for himself to stave off Spanish invaders. As a judge of the Admiralty, for years, Walker suffered under a string of incompetent or corrupt governors before the last one finally abandoned his post during the war. With no official representation, the Bahamas became increasingly lawless. So Walker decided to fill the power vacuum by appointing himself to the role of acting deputy governor. You see, unlike the vast majority of British officials, Walker has never given up on the Bahamas, never conceded for a second that it's a failed colony. Despite the abandoned houses looking out onto fallow fields that he passes each day on his way to town, or the fact that he needs to cover his nose with a handkerchief when walking through the rancid-smelling streets of Nassau, Walker still believes there's a chance to turn it all around. For him, the Peace of Utrecht is an opportunity for his island nation to finally become the colonial powerhouse that he knows it could be, and he won't let anyone get in the way of that destiny least of all lowlifes like Benjamin Hornigall and his pirate gang. One day, in the autumn of 1714, Thomas Walker sets off from his homestead just outside of Nassau. After so many years of struggle, he's finally carved out a nice, quiet life for himself, his wife Sarah, and their three adolescent children. But since Hornigold and his men arrived, Their peaceful existence has been shattered. They can barely walk down the streets without being harassed by drunken pirates who swagger around as though they own the place. Walker himself has become an object of ridicule. Hornigold certainly doesn't seem threatened by this trumped-up, self-styled governor, referring to him dismissively as a meddlesome old fart. The old man knows that if Hornigold and his men continue raiding Spanish ships, it's only a matter of time before the Spaniards retaliate against Nassau. And that he will not stand for, not again. So today, after months of suffering, Walker has decided to act. In his hand, he clutches a stack of letters addressed to anyone and everyone he thinks can aid him in banishing the pirates. Sure, it's a long shot, the Empire has made it clear that they believe the Bahamas are a lost cause. Many officials probably think he's downright delusional, but Walker is certain that if he can convince the crown of the threat these pirates pose, then his beloved islands might yet be saved. Perhaps they could recover to take their rightful place alongside Caribbean gems like Jamaica, Bermuda, and Barbados. Perhaps King George will even reward him for his heroic efforts and finally make him, Thomas Walker, the official governor He makes his way through the winding, unpaved streets of Nassau, picking his way over puddles of God-only-knows-what. Walker is jeered at by seamen swaying drunkenly in front of taverns. He hears fights emanating from back alleys and the sound of glass shattering. As he passes in front of a brothel, he blushes as sex workers blow him kisses and issue lewd remarks. Finally, Walker reaches the docks, where a mail ship is waiting to take his letters to the Lords of the Admiralty, the Lords of Trade, the Duke of Beaufort, even the Boston newsletter. Soon, some of the most powerful people in the British Empire will know of the growing nest of pirates in the Bahamas. Heading back to his homestead, Walker feels confident that help will soon be on the way. But as weeks and then months pass with no answer, it becomes clear that it is he, and he alone, who still believes in the Bahamas.
3: I've always kind of felt bad for Walker, right? Um, I don't don't have any basis for that. He might have been a jerk, but like, what a position he was in, right? He's been left in charge of a completely impossible situation.
0: Hopeless as the situation may seem, Walker is undeterred. He decides to, in his own words, execute justice upon the pirates. Just after Christmas in 1714, he rallies together some men and sets sail for Harbour Island, where Hornigold's ship, Happy Return, is currently moored. Walker and his crew are able to surprise the pirates, many of whom flee into the surrounding woods, firing off musket shots as they go. They are able to capture a few members of Hornigold's crew, none of the ringleaders, but Walker believes they'll be able to track them down soon enough. The biggest victory for Walker and his men is the seizure of Hornigold's prize ship, the Happy Return, the vessel that has become the symbol of the pirates' growing dominance in the Bahamas. Victorious, Walker sails the pirate ship back to Nassau. Once ashore, he hires men to hunt down Hornigold and the rest of his crew, who are now hiding amongst the logwood trees on Eleuthera, one of the small outlying islands. Walker is now filled with confidence. He's sure that this is just the first in a long string of victories he'll win against Hornigold and his band of criminals. But trouble is brewing on the horizon... Reports are coming in stating that the Spanish and Cuba are preparing a mass-scale assault on the Bahamas in retribution for the Hornigold's recent raids. Terrified, Walker boards the Happy Return and sails for Havana, hoping to pacify the governor of Cuba. Luckily, he's able to persuade the governor out of attacking his beloved Bahamas. He assures the Spaniard that he and his men are well on their way to quelling the pirate uprising. Or at least, that's what he thinks... Because after a month spent smoothing out his relationship with the governor of Cuba, Walker returns home to find that the pirates are back with a vengeance. And Benjamin Hornigold is quickly eclipsing him as the most powerful man in the Bahamas. By the summer of 1715, Hornigold's chokehold on the Bahamas has strengthened. Each day, more criminals and 'er ne'er-do-wells of every variety stream into Nassau, The village capital of New Providence is overrun. Hornigold seems to be amassing a pirate army. They've even come up with a name for themselves, the Flying Gang. Benjamin Hornigold is acutely aware that he is now the true authority in the Bahamas. He proclaims that all of the Flying Gang are under his protection and begins making direct threats to Walker. Hornigold warns that if the Walkers do anything more to interfere with his piratical exploits, he will burn their house down kill the old man, and whip the rest of them to within an inch of their life. For Walker, the last remaining vestige of Britain's authority, the writing is on the wall. The failed colony of the Bahamas that he's fought so long to preserve is emerging as the Pirate Republic, with Hornigold as its leader. In July 1715, strange and violent winds begin rising from the sea. The skies grow dark as menacing clouds eclipse the burning hot Caribbean sun. A mighty storm is brewing off the coast. No doubt Benjamin Hornigold and the rest of the flying gang see it coming. For what they don't know is that this storm will change their and the lives of all pirates in the Golden Age. Forever. Next week on Real Pirates... A violent hurricane ravages the Florida coast, wrecking Spain's treasure fleet and drawing hordes of pirates. Benjamin Hornigold's power continues to rise in Nassau, but there is an emerging contender to his throne. Captain Henry Jennings, a battle-hardened wartime privateer on his way to piracy, who executes one of the most lucrative raids in history. Who will emerge as the Pirate King? A fearsome rivalry is about to erupt in the Pirate Republic, but who will come out on top? Find out next week. Real Pirates is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boiro for Parcast. Produced and written by McAllister Beckson and Addison Nugent. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. Sound design by Tom Pink. Edited by Rob Plummer. Mixmaster by Kian Ryan-Morgan.